You know, sometimes putting a mirror in front of our face is kind of hard to do because we see the things we don't want to see and recognize sometimes the things that keep people from really knowing God is not God himself, but maybe even our own attitudes or things we might do. And, and so this whole series about taking the next step is, is, is a challenge for us to consider the kind of environment that we create as a community and also the kind of life that we share with others. And in the life of Jesus, the culture of Jesus was one where everyone was welcome. And we talked about that the last couple of weeks, and, and, and now we're going to talk for the next couple of weeks about this whole concept of what does it mean nobody's perfect? How is it that we create this kind of place, like Jesus did, where there were people who came, and they, they came into his presence, and you see this in the early church, and, and they came feeling welcome, and they knew they didn't have their act together, and yet they came to Jesus because they knew that he had something that could make a difference in their life. And how do we create that kind of place and that kind of space and those kind of lives that actually open the lives of others to the work of God? And I think there's some things that we need to be aware of when we talk about nobody's perfect. Things that if we're aware of it, they will help us in this whole process of creating this kind of space where people who don't have their act together can come because we have an understanding of what that means. And so we've been looking at the last couple of weeks uh, in Acts 10, this incredibly important passage of Scripture where the church has come to a place where they have seen many people, many Jews come to faith in him, then they go through persecution, and then they're beginning to start to go to different groups of people And here in Acts 10, God sends Peter to a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, who would be in their minds someone that you would just never associate with. Because not only is he a Gentile, he's a soldier, he's a Roman, he's a commander of these, and he's a Roman of Romans, he's a part of the Italian regiment. And so we come to chapter 11, and I want us to look at this. And obviously, you could spend, and I could spend a lot of time teaching about this from different vantage points and theological understanding. We only have a short time. So I'm going to just highlight some things out of this passage of Scripture that helps highlight this sense of the culture that I believe that God is seeking to create. And so if you look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, and I'll be reading from the the message translation just because it reads and flows well, and 18 verses is a lot. So just kind of follow along, because here's the story. Luke writes, The news traveled fast, and in no time the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem heard about it. They heard that the non-Jewish, quote, outsiders, unquote, were now in, quote, unquote. And when Peter got back to Jerusalem, some of his old associates, concerned about circumcision, called him on the carpet. What do you think you're doing rubbing shoulders with that crowd? eating what is prohibited, and ruining our good name. So Peter, starting from the beginning, laid it out for them step by step. Recently I was in town, in the town of Joppa, praying. I fell into a trance and saw a vision, something like a huge blanket lowered by ropes at its four corners, came down out of heaven and settled on the ground in front of me. Milling around on the blanket were farm animals and wild animals, reptiles, birds, you name it. And it was there. Fascinated, I took it all in. Then I heard a voice. Go to it. Go to it, Peter. Kill and eat. And I said, oh, no, no, master. I've never so much as tasted food that wasn't kosher. And the voice spoke again. If God says it's okay, it's okay. And this happened three times. 
And then the blanket was pulled back up into the sky. And just then, three men showed up at the house where I was staying. They were sent from Caesarea to get me. And the Spirit told me to go with them, no questions asked. So I went with them, I and six friends, to the man who had sent me. And he told us how he had seen an angel right in his own house, real as his next-door neighbor, saying, Send to Joppa and get Simon, the one they call Peter. He'll tell you something that will save your life. In fact, you and everyone you care for. So I started in, talking. And before I had spoken a half dozen sentences, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us the first time. And I remember Jesus' words. Jesus baptized, John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I ask you, if God gave the same exact gift to them as he has to us when we believe in the Master Jesus Christ, how could I object to God? And hearing it all laid out like that, they quieted down. And then, as it sank in, they started praising God. It's really happened. God has broken through to the other nations and opened them up to life. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you to take some of these thoughts and help us understand what it means to be the kind of community where we, 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 we do highlight the fact that nobody's perfect. Help us understand the fullness of what that means. And to be aware of how we can be the kind of people that allow people to come in and be welcomed from wherever they're at. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we need to know something about ourselves if we are truly going to know something deeply and intimately about God and with God and also to be able to love others well. Okay, we need to know some things about ourselves, And so what I want to share with you is some things that I think will give us some awareness that will help us create the kind of life and community where we live with this sense that, you know, nobody's perfect. And in the presence of God, everyone's welcome. There's some distinct things, though, that need to be understood here. And the first is that we need to just know how judgmental we are. We need to understand this tendency that we all have to quickly judge because there's something in us often that likes to kind of get one up and look down because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel, I hate to say it, but sometimes more saved. And it's really interesting when you read this first passage of Scripture and read in chapter 11, especially as I read from the NIV, it says, the apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So the news is starting to spread. Something's happening here. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, which is what they would do, because Jerusalem was kind of hill, it was kind of you went to the, up to Jerusalem, whether you were north or south of it, you went up to Jerusalem. As they went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, catch this, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. I can't, I can't believe that you would associate with these sinners. You've got to say it with a sense of derision and a real sense of, ugh, just say it once. Sinners. You're not saying it like you mean it. In one sense, as I began to read this, and I was preparing this, and I was going through this whole series, and in, this, in looking at Acts 10 and 11, and preparing this for these messages, I, I, could, I couldn't imagine, it just floored me how quickly 
this group became critical. It just, it just reminded me the capacity we have to, to criticize and to judge and to condemn. News had spread, but one of the things that had spread that created a sense of, of, of criticism was, did you hear what Peter did? Can you believe what Peter did? And when they heard that, their immediate response was a sense of judgment. And as I read that, I found myself getting ticked off. And I'm thinking to myself, you're about as bad as they are. Because I started to criticize them and not recognize the fact that just think of all the history that they had come out of and how long they had lived with this and now God seemed to be changing some things or reorienting or redirecting some things. And as I was, I was reading through that, I, I, I had like the Spirit of God kind of go, yeah, buddy. Because we have this capacity to criticize. And I want you to note for a second, part of the reason I got a little upset when I was reading this is I, I had read the backstory. You know, what we, often when we criticize people, we don't have a real good sense of what God might be doing. We don't have an understanding of what's going on in the background. We don't know where a person has come from. It's so easy for us to look at someone and go, I can't believe what a mess their life is. You, you notice all the things that are going on. As I kind of looked at this, I thought, this is amazing. They didn't know that Cornelius had a dream at 3 p.m. And I just, the number three is so important here. I'm, I'm not fully sure as I read through Scripture, but it's standing out here. He sees an angel. So he, that's the first thing. That's kind of a big deal. And then the angel tells him to look for a guy named Simon who's called Peter. Now, that's a pretty big deal, too, because Cornelius had no idea who this guy was. So this is a pretty remarkable thing. And not only that, the angel tells him exactly where Peter's going to be. He doesn't give him a street address. He says he's at Simon the Tanner's house. And that's how you'd come into a place in these smaller towns. They say, well, where's the Tanner live? The guy named Simon. He goes, oh, yeah, that, you know, the, and so the angel tells him that Peter gets hungry, a bit tired, around the same time that this is all happening, and he starts his prayers, and he has a dream. Three times God shows up with this, these animals, and three times God says, go eat, and three times Peter says, no way, I'm not going to do that. Three times God says to him, if I say it's okay, it's okay. Now, now this is all going on. All they know is Peter ate with a group of people. Three guys arrive at the door, coincidentally, right as Peter is processing the dream. He's lost in thought. As he's lost in thought, we read in Scripture, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. You know how many get nervous and get a little weirded out when someone tells you the Holy Spirit said something to me? Read the book of Acts, and then you'll be weirded out. And one of the reasons I took this church is because I want people to understand and know that the Holy Spirit really does speak to you. You've got to be careful because you can kind of get your own plans by using, you know, God said. That's manipulative. But it doesn't, you don't throw it all out. So here he is, um, lost in thought, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him. This is kind of a big deal. And, and then so Peter goes with these people to Cornelius' house because the Spirit says, don't hesitate, welcome them, open your arms to them. He goes to the house and he gets to their house and a whole crowd of people are there. Now, you've got to be going, this is, inc this is something incredible. And then Peter tells him about Jesus, and as he's telling him about Jesus and laying this all out there for him, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the same way it came upon those disciples beating up the room, the 120, and the Spirit comes, and they start speaking in tongues and praising God. It's the second Pentecost, in a sense. There's a Jewish one, now there's a Gentile one. 
the third person of the Holy Spirit, of, of the Trinity, comes in this remarkable way to these people. And I go, and you're criticizing them? Isn't that kind of interesting? We're so quick to do that. There's lots of common elements that we do all the time. We do it on hearsay. We don't know the backstory. Something's new and unfamiliar. It doesn't fit our experience. How often do you judge people? Because it just doesn't fit your experience. I mean, honestly, if they wanted to, they, they could have said, Peter, where does it say this in the Old Testament? I cannot find that verse. And yet, it's all over the, the understanding of how what Jesus has to say. Jesus at one point actually says this to him and, and, and says, they're going to come, you know, it's not what goes in you. It's not food that makes you unclean. And so he's, he's making this transition and they're having to work through it. And they even, here's something I think is really interesting too. Here is a person. If you were to say someone was credible among the disciples at this point, who would it be? Probably Peter. And Peter was the one who stood up and he preached and all these thousands came. Peter was the one who was with the three, with Jesus. Peter was the one who Jesus said, you're going to build this church. Peter was the one who had all this stuff. And it's, isn't it amazing how this person, even with this credibility and his character and all that it was, how quick they could still rush to judgment. I just, I just want us to be aware of the fact and not saying that you don't take things and with discernment really seek to understand and go to the word of God. What I'm saying in our congregation and in our lives, what has to happen with people is we need to kind of go, I don't understand, help me understand. Let's talk about this. Let's get understanding before we rush to judgment. Part of nobody's perfect is getting an awareness of how quick it is and how easy it is and how we have this large and un, I kind of call it endless capacity to criticize. I'm reading this word of God and I'm getting critical. And God says, you know what? You didn't live in their shoes. Are you holding anyone hostage to your criticism? Think about it for a second. Do you have any idea what God is doing in this person's life? Do you have any idea what this person has gone through? Do you have any idea what might be going on? Now, did God ask you, think about this, to be their judge? Now, I don't want to get in the way if he did. I just don't think God acts that way. I think he calls us to be in conversation and to really help people, and if there's sin, to help point it out and to deal with it. But it's not my job to be in judgment or condemnation of anyone because the next point's really incredibly important about this because when you begin to understand, when we talk about nobody's perfect and we recognize nobody's perfect, so I've got to be careful that I don't stand in the place of the judge to critic the one who's standing over you in some sense condemn you. There's no room for that. The next thing helps us even understand this more fully because when we talk about Nobody's perfect. The word of God's really pretty, pretty deep on this concept. It's not like our culture where we kind of, we don't mean by nobody's perfect. That it's kind of like, nobody's perfect. God just says, okay, that's not a problem. You know, it's good to go. I'm glad you admitted that you're not, you know, it's not what the word of God has to say here. What I think is interesting when you read on the story, let's look at verse four. And, and again, I think this is interesting because he tells the story now for the third time. If I was Luke, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of parchment. I'm kind of going, maybe what I would just say, remember the vision, this, this, this. He doesn't do that. He tells the story a third time because I think this story is so important. This decision to be the kind of community where people are welcome and they understand that their lives 
are not perfect, and they need someone who can help them become all that God has called them to be. This decision is so important, he says it a third time. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa. So if you're reading Acts, you're kind of going, boy, Peter, this is the third, I mean, Luke, this is the third time. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something large like a sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down where I was, and I looked into it and saw the four-footed animals on the earth with beasts, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. And then I heard a voice calling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I said and replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure and clean has ever entered this mouth, my mouth. And the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. And right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying and the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. There are six brothers also with me. If you go to verse 12, as it continues... As, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, now here's what I want, send to Joppa for Simon Peter, who is called, Simon, for, who is called Peter. Now catch this. He will bring you a message through which you and your whole, your whole household, all your household, will be saved. That's an interesting statement. Now, when you put this under this idea, what does it mean nobody's perfect? What I want to say is not only we need to know our tendency to want to step into the place of criticism, we need to understand just how messed up we are. You see, the word saved is an interesting word. The word saved is not kind of like, you know, um, you just self-correct a little. The word saved is this idea that if you don't get some kind of intervention, you're done. It's a big deal. So when we're talking about nobody's perfect, we're not just saying, oh, it's not just a real, it's, you know, we're all, we all make mistakes. It's a big deal is what he talks about here. Look at verse 14. He says, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Now, you've got to remember this. Cornelius was a devout, compassionate, generous, and godly guy. So much so that God took note of his heart. But God doesn't just say, you know, I just want to let you know you're in. God says there's something that's necessary for you to know if you're going to really know me fully. And that, that's a really important thing. To, God, there's something you need to know if you're going to know me fully. You need to know what it means to be saved. And so if you read these verses, you look at verse 36 of chapter 10. You just go back to that chapter. It says, you know the message God sent to the the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, which means there must be some bad news. So when we talk about nobody's perfect, it's not, aw, shucks, I'm just not really that good. It's there's some really bad news, folks. Verse 43, Peter elaborates on this further. All the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in Jesus receives, catch this, forgiveness of sins. That's the word we don't like to talk about. Doesn't that sound so final? It's so rotten. I mean, it's like sin. It's like you're condemned. There's no good. You can't go. I mean, it's over with. Sin has this idea that it's broken, it can't be, you can't fix it. It's the kind of word we just, you know, we don't use in our culture today. It's just become a theological term. We don't, we don't give out, like, sin citations from the police, you know, that kind of thing. 
It, it, it's the kind of word that if you go to a restaurant, you kind of laugh because you look at the menu and you go, wow, for dessert, um, the sinful triple chocolate cake. But the word of God's really clear. In fact, if you go on a little, or earlier on in chapter 2, verse 38, when, when Luke writes this, he records the words of Peter. Peter, when he gets done and people are um, seeing what's happening and he reports this long message, and at a certain point he gets to the very end of the message and he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, good Jew, bad Jew, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3, verses 16 through 19, Peter says to a group of Jews who are astonished. They're in the temple area, and they're astonished because this guy is jumping around. He's praising God. He's so excited. Everyone recognizes that he was the cripple who was born with paralysis, who had sat by the gate, who had begged for money, and somehow something had happened Peter, in the name of Jesus, said, Silver and gold, I have not any of that, but I do give you this. And what he gives him is the healing power of God in his life. And, and catch what he says to all these. He says, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. Now, ignorance is a very interesting word, right? It means that you just didn't have enough knowledge, maybe didn't have enough resources, enough whatever, to make a good decision. He said, I know you acted in ignorance. And, and, and we kind of go, well, ignorance is something, you know, you, you know, try ignorance. He goes, but, but repent then and turn to God that you, your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What I think is interesting, he doesn't go, okay, you're just ignorant. You just need to aware of this. If you're just aware of this, you know, it was just a mistake. He doesn't say that. He says, even your ignorance requires a repentance for sin. Now, when I think about that, I, I just go, have you ever tried to claim ignorance to a policeman when you, you know, they stop? You know, I've done this once, well, only once. No. Um, and, and, and it was really in Arizona, and I was going 40, and they have these weird kind of signs that say 30 or something like that <laughs> when they shouldn't. And the officer just was not willing to hear my plea that I just didn't know. I still got slapped with the ticket. I was still wrong. And so what I think is interesting is when you go through this, we have within our culture this day this idea that we like this idea of ignorance. We like to talk about the fact that we made a mistake. No one likes to hear the word sinner. Wouldn't it be far easier if we were just mistakers? You know what? God just, he, he loves you, mistakers. How often have you heard in the news, you, he, you hear on the report, here a politician stands up, he has for years been, been in this relationship with, with someone he shouldn't be, and he stands up and he makes this confession, I admit, I, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Or some official gets up and, 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 and they, they find that they've been cooking the books for years and they go, you know what? I just, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. 
If you just take this line further, if mistakes are just not having enough information or understanding, what can happen then is really all you need is enough information to self-correct. So it's really like this. If you're going down the road and you take a right when you really should have taken a left, you can just kind of save yourself by getting the right directions and going the right way. It's all about self-correction. Or maybe you think about the idea of a mistake. Anybody, when you were in... Just think back some years in college or high school. Maybe you're taking a math exam and you, got, you miscalculated. Anybody ever done that? Come on, raise your hand. Anybody? Okay, good. Now I'm speaking to people I can, who can relate. And, and what a teacher might do, if you had that red mark, they might come up and they might say, what I want you to do is to redo it. And they give you an eraser and you recalculate it so you can correct your mistake. But that's not what the word of God implies. What do you call an intentional mistake? Something you've planned to do over and over again. Think about it for a second. What do you you call that if you've actually thought about how you're going to plan to do this mistake? And then you look that person in the eyes and just say, you know, I made a mistake, I'm really sorry. What do you do when you habitually make that mistake? See, the word that the, the Bible has for that is sin. And when it means that nobody's perfect, what, what he wants us to know is that we're messed up far deeper than any of us ever realize. So much so, it doesn't take your self-correction you will not be able in your own power to correct it. Paul at one point says, the things I want to do, I can't do, I don't do. And he goes on to this whole thing and he says, in what's happening in me, even when the law points it out as something good, my heart does something wrong. I need something in me. It's not something that I can correct. I need to be saved. I need to be corrected deep within. Now, when you get that understanding... And you begin to realize the depth of what is in your own heart and, and that, that requires God to forgive. You begin to know something deeply about yourself that allows you to know something deeply about God. There was a long time when I was in high school and college when people would talk, especially in my first year in college and high school, they would talk about the grace of God. And, and I honestly, it was like a foreign word to me. I, I, people would talk about it and they'd cry. And, and, and I, to me, I went, man, I'm living a pretty good life. Until at one point, God began to work in my heart and I began to realize deep in my heart that not only am I perfect, I'm really messed up. I need someone. I need someone. And this someone God needs to deal with my heart. And I began to realize that my relationship with God was so broken, so much so, that when I looked in his eyes, I had to get real with myself. I had to look in his eyes and say, I'm sorry. I need for you to forgive me. I need grace. Unmerited, unmerited goodness on your behalf. Think about it for a second. If you are a person and it's been an intentional mistake for a long time and you say, and it's been a mistake where you have um, really blown it big and you look in your spouse and all you say is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, how safe do you feel as a spouse? Because you've got to say, I don't know if that person really gets it. I don't know if I can trust the fact 
that they understand the pain and disruption and the break that has occurred. And what happens according to the word of God, which is very clear, to a really good guy named Cornelius with a lot of really good people, I think he didn't have to go a whole lot into this message for them there because they knew, they understood that the only way they'd be accepted and they would experience the presence of God was by God in his grace, in his forgiveness, doing something they couldn't do. Does that make sense? So when you begin to understand that, you go, I have this tendency to be in this one position to criticize. You get into this other place and you go, when we talk about nobody's perfect, we're not talking about that's not a big deal. God just kind of says, you know, here, give you an eraser. He does not say that. He says, I give you a savior. Does that make sense? And I got to tell you, if you have been saved or needed a savior, not just an eraser, how can you stand in this first place of judgment. Because when you have been in that place and, and God has taken you by his grace and his goodness and, and said, I restore relationship with you, you're overwhelmed. You're like, you're like when Jesus told the story, he was trying to get into the hearts of these self-righteous Pharisees, he says, let me tell you a story. This guy, this dad, he had two brothers, two sons, and, and the younger one at one point comes to him and says, you know what, dad? I'm tired of being under your hand. You, you're, you, I, I want my money now. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. So give it to me, my inheritance. And he takes the inheritance, and he just completely dishonors his father, completely breaks relationship. And in a Jewish culture, the father would have nothing to do with that son from that point on. He would never look for him. He would not care for him. And the son goes away, and the son throws and wastes it all. At some point, he's, he's not hardly having anything to eat. He's actually eating the food that he's feeding to the pigs. And it says he came to his senses. He realized that he screwed up, that he messed up. And he's thinking, if I could just come back to my father, I know I'll never be a son again. I'll know I'll never be in that position again. And as he's going home, here's what he's saying in his mind. He doesn't go, Father, I've made a mistake before heaven and before you. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. What has happened in here has broken relationships with you and broken relationship um, with you and, and my father and you. And at that point, he just throws himself at his mercy and says, maybe I can be a servant. See, when you know something about yourself, your tendency, and then you know something about the, the depths of your own heart, you begin to know something about the goodness and grace of God and when you experience that, as it says here, as he was speaking, the Spirit came on them. And I remember what the Lord had said, that he had baptized not just with water, but with the Spirit. And God gave them the same gift. If God has given you that gift of mercy and love and goodness, and you've experienced it from him, and you've probably experienced it from someone else, then the tendency to judge, the awareness of who we really are, with the understanding and the experience of the gift that we've been given, we are compelled to give to others. And that kind of community just breathes the life of God into other people. And so as you begin to understand how good God is, and, and, and it, it says here as it comes to the very end, the very last verse then says, when they heard this, 
They had no further objections and praise God, saying, so then even Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I think the decision they made there, you've experienced the goodness of God. The reason you're sitting here is because they're that kind of community that recognized this whole truth that they had to give away the gift of this grace that they had been given. And so as I talk about this in our community, I just want to end with these thoughts. One is, folks, there is no room for what I call judgmental criticism in our body. There is all kinds of room for us to converse with one another and say, help me understand, help me process this, help me see this. There's all kinds of room to be able to differ with someone and take that stand. There's all kinds of room to go to God's word, but one thing there isn't is for my ability to stand over you in in judgment. It's the word of God that does that. And the second thing is this. There is no room for pride. Anybody here perfect? And if nobody's perfect, it's not just, oh, I made a mistake. We understand what? We need a Savior, not an eraser. And the last thing I just want to share with you is that we need people to support and encourage one another in this journey. I need you to see my sin and to be able to walk with me and say, I know that God has something better for you. What you, the sin, whatever it might be in your life, is really just hurting you and hurting others. But I'm going to come around you and help you. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, I need someone like that in my life. Some of you are in marriages where you don't feel that even in your own marriage or you're, you're in a work situation. And you know what? We need one another to support one another. I was shown this video, and I just want to close with this, this video story just, just to say, folks, let's be like this. I pledge allegiance to the flag. All the students at Franklin Elementary start every day with a pledge. Indivisible. But the justice for all part belongs to five fifth grade boys. Why pick on someone who needs, has special needs? Yeah. They're talking about James Wilmot. Hi. Is. Who learns a little differently. Was. Than most of the other fifth graders. Coins. They're like using them. Which, it turns out. And taking advantage of them. Can get a guy teased. Coin. Because he's easier to pick on and it's just not right. Which is why Gus, Tyler, Landon, Jake, and Jack. <laughs> decided this year to have James's back. It really kind of makes you proud to be their teacher. Mallory Hauk says the school's anti-bullying lessons must have struck a chord. Landon. But this has gone beyond even her expectations. Thank you. James's mom's too. He used to not want to go out for recess or anything. It would be like a struggle. Hike. And now he can barely eat his lunch to get outside to play with those guys. <laughs> play and learn. He has a notebook with over oh. 600 teams of college. Gustavus Adolphus. That's how much he likes sports. Nebraska. They learned, too, that James was adopted from an orphanage in Columbia and that six years later he lost his new father in a bicycle accident. And we just got a basketball hoop last week because he now loves basketball. I mean, they're changing him. And they're still not done. We're like, do you have any sports games? He like, and he was like, no, I don't have any video game systems. So that's when I came up with the idea. With some of their own money and some from their parents, the boys recently delivered to James video games and a new PlayStation. Every one of them 
was smiling like crazy. The first time friends had ever come to play with James. I'll never forget it. Never. Jack, what? you tie my shoe. Yep. Indivisible. <laughs> He's an awesome kid to hang out with. You're too fast! <laughs> guys are, are the best friends anybody could ask for. No Franklin fifth grade friends have ever pledged allegiance like the James gang. It's my 12th touchdown. All of you guys. Anybody feel like a special needs kid? I mean we all are. And sometimes I think as we grow to be adults we're just like those little kids just grown up. And God wants people to make decisions like they made. Back in Acts 11 that said, you know what? Get power criticism. Let's understand we need a Savior. And let's recognize the fact that you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask you to think about it. I'm going to ask you to make a decision. God, you know, I'm just going to, let's stand together. I'm going to ask you to stand as we do this. And I'm going to ask you just to kind of, you know, you can grab the pew in front of you and just bow your head for a moment. And just say, God, you may be feeling like that special needs person. And, and, and I just want to let you know Jesus loves you deeply. He sees your heart. He knows you need a Savior, not an eraser. And he is here to save you. Just call on him. Just call on him because Jesus tells us that anyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. But some of you, I just want you to think about a decision. There are special needs people right around you in this church. There are people where you work or in your neighborhood. And it may be that right now God is bringing a person to mind. Maybe just a few of you that God is saying, here is a person that I want you just to share the gift of the Holy Spirit's active life in you into their life. And love them. Support them and encourage them see the love of God change and warm their hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day, how beautiful it is, your gracious and goodness, and for the fact that you have loved us through Jesus. You have saved each and every one of us. For with Paul, we can say we're the chief of sinners. We see our hearts, and you see our hearts, and you still love us, and you've provided for us. And in all that, we can only say thank you. Now may we provide like you did for us to others. In Jesus' name, amen.